The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Big creations of kind of modern set of unemployment and pension and health insurances that most of us rely on were created either because of the Great Depression and the Second World War or during the Cold War. And all the time there were opponents and there was crisis. And it's harder, I think, in day-to-day politics for us to develop that sense of community. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not saying that I think we ought to have a, a giant world war in order to improve American healthcare. But it's also the case that you do need to find these binding moments. You know, I think it's fair to say that some people thought COVID might be that, but I don't think that's turned out to be the case. Welcome back to the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and all week I'm talking with Ben Ansel, author of the book, Why Politics Fails. Ben is a professor of comparative democratic institutions at Oxford, and in his book, he examines why it is that our political systems so often fall short of achieving our collective goals. He does this by describing what he calls the various traps that await us any time we try to make decisions as a group. He's already talked to us about the democracy trap and the equality trap, and you can hear those episodes in your podcast feed or check out those ideas in our Next Big Idea app. Today, Ben's going to talk about the trap we step into whenever we try to provide a common benefit, like unemployment insurance, universal health care, or social security. Sure, in theory, we'd like to have a system that's there to support us if and when we fall on hard times. But that's when we get caught in what Ben calls the solidarity trap. The solidarity trap is that we only care about solidarity when we need it ourselves. We'd all like others to look after us when we're ill or unemployed or old. We just don't really want to pay for other people going through tough times. The challenges of health reform in America are a classic example of the solidarity trap. Somehow, the United States has ended up spending more public money on health care while covering fewer people than other countries. In 2010, the United States government spent almost $4,000 per person per year on health care, more than Canada, France, Germany, Sweden and the UK. But all those countries covered 100% of their residents. By contrast, in America, over 18% of people were uninsured, 48 million citizens. And this was just public money. The total amount spent per person in the American healthcare system was just under $8,000, The public spending that failed to cover a fifth of Americans was still less than one in two dollars spent on health in America. But even a pretty modest reform to this system, the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, was massively controversial. And that's because it can be hard for us to have solidarity across time and across people. Across time, it's hard for present healthy me to protect future sick me. Obamacare tried to resolve the solidarity trap by compelling people to buy health insurance, the so-called individual mandate. But the mandate was unpopular. People who were currently well thought, I'm healthy, I won't get sick. Why should I be forced to buy this insurance I don't need? What's more, in diverse societies like America, it can sometimes be harder to create solidarity across people. Obamacare became infected with America's often volatile racial politics. When the civil rights hero, Congressman John Lewis, walked to the Capitol to pass the Affordable Care Act, he and his colleagues were called racial slurs by opposing crowds. 
solidarity from one American to another was hard to find. Let's define solidarity. I, I mean, I think of it as the spirit of we're all in this together, but maybe you can give me a more precise definition. I think that's the definition I should have used in the book, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, simple definition. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I tend to think of solidarity as a thing that each of us would want individually, mm-hmm. which is for other people to look out for us when mm-hmm. we're doing badly. And, you know, there's a reciprocal element to that then, which, you know, which is solidarity, which is that when they in turn are in trouble, we look after them. I think in political reality, that's more unusual, right? We think charity begins at home, um, but we still think that there ought to be some kind of charity. We might have views about the deservingness of people, who deserves our, Mm -hmm. our charity. But even the most libertarian person tends to agree that somebody ought to provide for the sick, they just might not think it's the government, right? And so there's been right. private almsgiving for you know thousands of years. In the last 100 years, we have partly nationalized solidarity, right? So we have state or national unemployment insurance. We have some forms of public health care, right? even in the United States, which amazingly spends more on public health care as a proportion of its national income than the United Kingdom that has a fully nationalized health care service does, right? So clearly Americans are spending a lot looking after each other. And, you know, when we talk about things like foreign aid, that's also a form of solidarity. Obviously, it's a more controversial one. Um, but you can see, you know, when international um, humanitarian disasters happen, that people give a lot in charity, sometimes through the government and sometimes directly. These are all different forms of what I call solidarity in the book. But you say there's a solidarity trap. You know, there's something structural in the way we we approach solidarity that, that gets us stuck. And the example of healthcare in the United States is quite interesting. And you say one of the problems here is that it's hard to feel solidarity across time. So the issue with healthcare or health insurance is that the present, hopefully healthy version of myself has to make an investment in an imagined future sick version of myself. And frankly, I might not want to do that. You know, I'd rather spend my money on healthy me now and have some fun. Say more about that, the the problem of solidarity over time and, and how we can have a hard time feeling it or expressing it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the basic problem we have on whenever we think about insurance, right? We always want insurance at the moment that the accident happens, and we'd rather right. not pay for it otherwise, because what we're doing is sort of smoothing out luck and fortune over time, right? So during all the periods of good luck when we didn't need the insurance, we might think of it as wasted money. And then when the catastrophe hits, we suddenly need to have paid all those premiums. Um, right. I think, you know, we are all, you know, self-interested humans to some degree looking out for what's best for us. Nobody wants to spend more on insurance than they have to, uh, but also people don't want to go without it if they need it. The problem is, of course, that the time when you pay for it and the time when you receive it are different times. And so you have to find a way to align the preferences of current you and future you. And that's a real challenge. And let me give you the obvious example from the American case, which was um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, mm-hmm. uh, initially had this thing called the mandate. And the mandate said, if you have not got private health care insurance or insurance through one of the Obamacare exchanges, you need to pay a fee to the government when you fill in your 1040. Right? And this operated yeah. for a couple of years until the Supreme Court struck it down. 
and and the mandate you know wasn't a, wasn't a very large fine that people had to pay but yeah. people were furious about it because they said well i don't need health insurance i'm young and i'm fit so why do i need yeah. that and of course you know that's that's how people felt until they got sick the mandate was a way to try and align people's preferences but the only way you could do that was punitively which upset people yeah yeah and if it's hard for me to invest in my future self, it's all the harder for me to invest in other people and other people's future selves, right? Especially if I don't identify them as part of my tribe. And this is the other part of the solidarity trap that you talk about, the you know uh, solidarity across space rather than time. So that what are the limits of my charity? You know, charity begins at home, <laughs> we say, but then am I accountable to my town, to my state, to my ethnicity, to my class. If where we want to get to is solidarity across the nation and perhaps even across the globe, how can we how can we possibly get there? Yeah, people have often in social sciences wondered why America has you know much lower levels of social spending on these types of programs than mm. Europe. Now it, it's not, you know, it's not through the floor, right? I mean, in a way, Medicare and Medicaid are very generous. They just don't cover everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the classic answer that people have given is that, well, America's very ethnically diverse. And a large enough group of people in America have uh, what in the book I call ethnocentric preferences, but you could Mm -hmm. also call it racism, depending on your views, but where they'd rather give benefits to people who look like them. Uh, And so you can imagine a diverse society might struggle uh, to create a sense of solidarity that encompasses the whole nation. I think there are ways out, but they require politicians actively entrepreneurially trying to create a kind of civic nationalism is is the phrase. Arguably, you saw that in the Cold War, right? So the big creations of kind of modern set of unemployment and pension and health insurances that most of us rely on were created either because of the Great Depression and the Second World War or during the Cold War. And all the time, there were opponents and there was crisis. And it's harder, I think, in day-to-day politics for us to develop that sense of community. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly not saying that I think we ought to have a, a giant world war in order to improve American healthcare. But it's also the case that you do need to find these binding moments. You know, I think it's fair to say that some people thought COVID might be that, but I don't think that's turned out to be the case. So what do you think about something like universal basic income as a way to not just uh, deal with the equality trap, but also the solidarity trap that, you know, a, a kind of universal income program that might make us act as one or, or feel more common feeling for each other because we're all participating in this program together. Yeah, and universal basic incomes have, have been in the news. So you know, Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI, is one person who's spoken about a, a universal basic income of about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a year. So imagine that every American got that. So what it does from our perspective of the, of the solidarity trap is it resolves the across time problem because you get it every year regardless of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It, I think, broadly resolves the across people problem because everybody gets it, right? So you can't really associate the welfare program with a particular stigmatized group. And it resolves all kinds of problems about information and who's ill and who's not because, well, you just give the same to everybody so you don't have to care. So there are lots of benefits mm-hmm in those ways with with universal basic income. But I think there's one huge risk, which is that $14,000 per person, as I say in the book, is about what America spends on its existing social spending programs. Mm 
So the question is, are you replacing all of those with the universal basic income? And if so, what are you going to do about the fact that luck and fortune, particularly as regards healthcare, is not evenly distributed, right? Some people just have worse outcomes. Right. And if you're going to say to them, well, instead of having a catastrophic insurance program, you can have 14,000 bucks a year, they're going to yeah. struggle if they have medical bills of $300,000. And I also think it, you know, to get to a kind of, you know, people's views about fairness, which we spoke about when we talked about equality the reaction that many people would have which is if you get this money you can just become a ski bum right or you mm -hmm. can you know walk the appalachian trail i think does offend a kind of sense of natural work ethic that americans and you know, people around the world have that means that you could end up not only stigmatizing a single group which sometimes happens with welfare programs but stigmatizing the entire thing right because you're giving to everybody mm -hmm. which means that I, i'm not confident it would be a really stable program That's it for today, everyone. Tomorrow, Ben will be back to talk about what he calls the security trap. That's where he'll get into the unavoidable tension between anarchy and tyranny. Turns out a functioning society needs a little bit of both in order to manage collective threats like crime, terrorism, and pandemics. Hope you'll come back. Also, sign up for my newsletter using the link in the episode notes. I'll send you a weekly summary of the podcast with useful links and resources so you can build your own private collection of the world's best ideas. I'm Michael Kavnet. See you tomorrow.